Okay. Well, let's get started. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Enter the stage, Bathsheba. Dun, 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 dun. Let's read through the chapter, or at least portions of it. Verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Let's stop there. First off, when it says in the springtime when kings go to war, it's not like every spring the kings go to war. What it's saying is that after the weather got better and it was time where they could actually go to the war. And so in the winter months where it would be too cold and too difficult, to carry supplies, provide for the troops in that kind of a battle, especially if they're taking siege to a place, then they would wait for the weather to get better. And that's why this time when the weather is better and the kings go to war, but David did not go out to battle. He stayed back, left Joab in charge. Remember last chapter, Joab had started a battle, but David came and finished the battle and David needed some, you know, or David was a help in getting the battle finished. He was more military savvy or maybe he provided inspiration, whatever. He wasn't there at the battle at this time. And so as he remained in Jerusalem, one evening he gets up, goes out to the roof, sees a woman that's beautiful, and they ask someone to find out about her. Now, in this portion, let me ask you this. Is it because David didn't go out to war that he fell into sin with Bathsheba? Do you think so? No? I see a few of you shaking your heads. No? I guess the question is, is the sin that he... Is it the sin that he didn't go out to war? Or is the sin something else? Yes, Lola. So is it God's plan for him to commit adultery? It was God's plan for him to commit adultery? You just opened up something huge. Um, God is going to do a work. And he said it was going to be through David. His line. David had already other sons. Didn't have to be Solomon. That it was, 1 Kings chapter 1 kind of shows Bathsheba giving a push for Solomon as opposed to one of his other sons who was trying to take it. But to say that it was God's plan for it to be Bathsheba's son 
I think is opening ourselves up for problem and saying then providence is including something that would be uh, sinful. Uh, I think God has a plan, and then we can mess things up, and God has to work so he can still accomplish his plan, like he did with Jonah. But to say that it was God's will for David and Bathsheba to have the baby, to have this, I think is stretching what I I think would be, I think we're in dangerous ground if we say that, only because then we're saying that God basically says it's okay, even though we are saying it's not. And you know what I'm saying? And that's the problem that we have when we come into a place of, you know, predetermination as opposed to predestination. You know, predestined and predetermined can really be two different things. And God has a plan and a destiny, but he's not determining every step that we make along the way. He leaves that freedom up to us. And so here we see David making a decision that we know is wrong. Scripture has declared it. David knew it was wrong, as we're going to see in the next chapter. But David made the decision. And here's why I was asking the question, if David wasn't here, you see, James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 13, that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And this scripture fits so well in what happens here with David. Because seeing a woman bathing isn't what caused him to sleep with her. It was that he was allowing his desire to entice him and giving in to that desire. You see, David asked, who is this woman? And when the answer came back, this is Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife, he should have said, oh, she's married. Before that, he should have said, I've got enough wives. Okay? And so David has an issue already. Okay? He's a hopeless romantic. Whatever you want to say, you can try and soften it. But David has got a problem with women. And his son is going to have that same problem. And and so he has this problem. And that problem now becomes the enticement that he gives into. And it's not that Bathsheba was on the roof. It's not that he wasn't out to war. It's that he gave in to this enticement. That's why he called for her. And then when he heard, it didn't matter. You see, the reason he didn't care if she was married at this point is because he was being dragged away by that enticement. In other words, his mind was already there. And so he's like, who is this woman? And between the time that the guy went down the steps of the palace over to the house to find out, hey, who are you? Oh, you're Bathsheba. Came back up. David's mind was thinking that whole time. He wasn't like, huh, we'll find out who she is. I think I'll play some backgammon. You know, he wasn't doing something like that. He was thinking. 
And so when he came back and he said, this is who it is, it didn't matter at that point. He had already made the decision. And so he called for her, slept with her, and we found, find out that she becomes pregnant. And so David is the one who gave in to his own evil desire. He was enticed, and it dragged him away from where he should have been. And that's an illustration for us. We entertain these kind of thoughts. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus talking to the Pharisees after he heals a man. And they said, they started murmuring among themselves how he healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says something that has always struck me. He said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart. And the idea of entertaining evil thoughts, I think of entertaining and I think of people coming over and, hey, can I get you anything? Hey, have a seat. Hey, do you want, you know, can I fill up your coffee cup? You're, you're giving in and you're trying to cater to that thought. Why do people entertain evil thoughts within their heart? And that's exactly what David was doing entertaining this thought the whole time in his heart when he came back by that time he had committed himself to what he should do now do you think just throw this out it doesn't say so there's no right or wrong answer do you think Bathsheba is in the wrong do you think she had any wrongdoing part of this you think so remember to the time Corinne you had your hand up you gonna share she could have probably stood up against that, but also remember at this time, a woman's place wasn't as prominent as it is. She didn't have the voice that women have today, and even now today people think that they don't have the voice they should. And so it, there was a lot of things going against her where the king did have a lot of leverage against her. We don't know. We don't know. I just thought I'd cause a fight and ask Stir up things. Okay. Let's continue reading. Verse 6. So David finds out she's pregnant. Okay. Now you got to just be thinking, okay, I'm king, you know, did this. And now she comes back and says, hey, I'm pregnant. I know that's happened to a lot of people where it's like, "Uh uh-oh, you're pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, because he's really concerned about Joab, how the soldiers were and how the war is going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Ooh, bummer. 
Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So David has a plan. Get Uriah drunk, get him home. He'll sleep with Bathsheba. They'll think it's his baby. Think about that. That's terrible. That's terrible. This man will grow up thinking it's his son and it's not. He'll just cover that up. And it seems just so out of character for a person of God to do something like that. I don't know how many times I have said or heard or thought just that. Have you guys ever found out someone did something? A pastor slept with another man's wife and it's someone you had respect for and you thought, I don't know how anyone especially him, could have done that. And it's amazing how reason changes when it becomes self-preservation. When we're worried about ourselves, we are blind to what is just or unjust. We are blind to what is clearly against God's will and what's just going to cover our backside. And so what we do is lie, finagle, deceive, work things out so that we won't have to deal with the consequences of what we have done. But we did it. And David could have gotten away with this, but he didn't. And you never really get away with it. And so now David is forced to deal with this again. He sinned once already sleeping with another man's wife. Now he's deceitful trying to get this man to think this baby that's not his is his, and it just gets worse. It snowballs. Verse 16, or verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So Uriah is carrying his own death warrant. So while Joab and the city under siege had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of that city came out and fought against Joab, some of the, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? 
who killed Abimelech's son of Jerobeshib, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So what's Joab doing here? Exactly. Joab's saying, okay, this is a stupid move, but the reason we did it and had these men killed is because David wanted Uriah killed. And so now David's sin is affecting a lot of people. It affected Bathsheba. It affects Bathsheba's family. Her father, Eliam. It affects her grandfather, who is Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's counselors who ended up betraying David and going to Absalom. It's no wonder. Look what you did to my family. Not only that, it kills Uriah and whoever these other men are, and it affects them as well. When we sin, we always involve other people. Always. No one sins by themselves. The things we do affect the people around us. They affect the people who love you. They affect the people who are a part of your life, who depend on you. We are attached, and it's foolish to think that we can sin and it go unnoticed. And so Joab is saying, if he gets upset about this move, tell him this, because that's what he wanted. Verse 22, the messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so chapter 11 ends with this sentence, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's important to recognize that what displeases God is detrimental to us. That when something is displeasing to the creator of life, it usually leads to death. That's what James told us. Sin, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. When something displeases God, it gives birth to death. What a, a picture.
And we're going to see that's exactly what happened. Any thoughts on this story so far that stand out to you guys? Yeah, no, it's kind of funny when you start hearing. I, I remember when I was young and I'd hear these stories about my family, like, oh, so and so did this. And it would be like, what? You know, how could they? I never thought they were, you know, those things are there, all those skeletons in the closets that come out and show up after time. And you would think all those things would be warnings. You know, it's like God giving David another chance, another chance. You know, go sleep with your wife. No, he didn't go. Oh. Okay, you know, here's my opportunity. Come clean. Well, try it again. Let's get him drunk. He didn't. Oh, okay. And instead of, again, going that way, he's blinded and just goes to the other direction. And we probably can all relate to that in some way or another. You don't have to confess here. Can you imagine, though, your worst moments are written down for everyone to read? She keeps the record of them. Yeah, they are. You know what, though? I mean, what has happened, and it's unfortunate, but we have so covered up our shortcomings that now people feel that they can never, you know, come clean and talk about these things because, oh, no, if you know about these things... Well, the, the truth is there's a lot of those things, you know, in a place like a church. They're prevalent. In fact, I was talking with some friends a while back about some things that have happened to us and to them with people in the church and how one of the guys says we should write a book about these things. And I was thinking, oh, wow, that'd be... You know, that'd be, yeah, that'd be tough. But there is a book written. It's the scripture. It's written with all those things. And why is it now that, oh, to write those things, oh, you're being mean, you're trying to knock someone down, and that's just mean-spirited. No, it's just true. But if the truth keeps coming out and people don't like it, well, maybe they'll see that the same things still happen, that people still are giving in to their evil desires, still get blinded, still make decisions that are wrong, selfish, whatever those things are. And you're not alone. Those things happen. And I think that's important. Let's let's continue reading. Because David doesn't get away with it. Now, I think it's interesting, the last sentences, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And verse 1 of chapter 12 says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. You know, it's a good thing when God doesn't let you get away with your sin. It's a good thing when you have a God who actually cares about what you do. We talked about this two weeks ago, we, our first series on perspective. How if you want a God who cares, then you have a God who has an opinion. And that opinion cares about the things you do. And so God sent Nathan to David. Why? Because God cared. God cared about what Nathan did. The Lord wasn't pleased, and now he sends someone to bring the change. 
because God doesn't want David to live in this condition. It's a good thing when God brings change because he doesn't want us to remain in that condition. It's actually a loving thing to do. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite be to be your own. This is what the Lord says out of your own household. I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Ooh, busted. Okay. Nathan comes, gives this story, and this is one of these cinematography or, you know, just movie moments here. You know, that whole line, you, David, are that man. It's just, you could see it building up as David gets all upset. And he says, this person must must die. Literally, this person is a son of death. And it says that he must pay in verse six, the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, the reason he said that is because that's what the law required. In Leviticus or Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So the law says that if you steal something that doesn't belong to you, you have to pay four times. And so here is David reciting the law. The law of God says, even though he has just defiled the law of God. And this is what hypocrisy does. 
I can be enraged about your sin. This man who's just a picture of who David was. And I'm going to require God's law and judgment on him. But really, I can stay blind to what I've done. And I find that so interesting that he brings the law of God into this story. People are quick to bring scripture in to condemn others and never look at themselves. And so when you start judging other people and their sin, better be careful. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 17, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. The world is judged already because it doesn't believe in the one whom God has sent. If Jesus doesn't come to bring judgment, if that wasn't his purpose to bring judgment, why do we want to so quickly? Why are we so quick to bring judgment? And David doesn't realize he's talking to about himself. And this is just one of those great moments where that line, this is kind of like Jesus is, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar, render to God what belongs to God. This is like Paul in Athens chapter 17 of Acts, just giving this incredible discourse. Nathan comes and he just lays out this story that it so exposes David that David judges himself. His own words condemn him. His own actions are now what he's bringing judgment to. Verse 9, well, let me ask you guys first. Any things hit you with these verses, this discourse of Nathan? I like verse 9, where it says, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Despise the word of the Lord. What do you think that means? What does it mean to despise the word of the Lord? Not obey? Okay. And what is the word of the Lord here referring to? The law. The the things that God has made known. Okay. The word of the Lord is the things that have been written for us. The revelation of God to his people. You despise that. In other words, God has given you instruction and you have despised it. She just likes it outside, huh? (laughs) And so David has despised the word of the Lord. And again, what's interesting is God takes this personal. He didn't just sin against Uriah or Bathsheba or those men who were killed or the families. This is despising what God has given him. And God takes it personal. You know, the scriptures tell us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's a frightening thought, that I can make God sad or sorry or grieve his heart. It's something that is frightening. To think that he feels that way. Again, it's easier to have a God who isn't so personal. 
It's easier to have a God who doesn't have an opinion. But once God does, and he says, here, I'm I'm giving you understanding of what my desires are for you, and then we go against them, we're despising the word of the Lord. We're despising what he has revealed to us. And then Nathan tells him this is going to happen to him. Verse 11, the Lord is going to bring out this calamity in his own household. Even in verse 10, there's going to be a sword that despises you and your house because you took the sword to Uriah. We know that his own sons killed each other because of their sin with each other. We know that his son Absalom also slept with his wives, concubines, up on the rooftop in open display that he was now taking over the kingdom, which is there revealed in, uh, we'll read it later in chapter 16. But this is all God telling. Now, when God is telling David these things, he says it in very forceful language. He says, verse 12, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. God says, I will do this, but we know it was Absalom who actually did it. What does he mean by that? Isn't that interesting words to use? I will do this. Yeah, Absalom is the one who did it. Why do you think that is? What do you think's going on there? That was the answer there. Let's move on. <laughs> what? You mad dog in me? I think God is declaring that you know, these wheels that we set in motion, this idea of you reap what you sow, that what goes around comes around kind of mentality, that God has placed this kind of justice in the universe, that you do not get away with anything that you do that is going to be harmful or hurtful to others. You do not, even if no one were to find out, it will come back and it will affect your life in one way or another. If we would realize that the things we do to others and how we would despise the things that God has revealed would have serious consequences and effect in our lives. That God is saying, it's going to happen. You can mark my words on it. In other words, God's saying, I'm telling you, it's going to happen. Why? Because that's how I have arranged the universe we live in. There is a moral fiber through all creation. You cannot escape it because I am a moral being. God created all these things in this idea of morality and you can't go outside of it because there is nothing outside of it and so mark his words if you do something you will get back what you've put out and so God says I'll see that this happens because that's how I've set creation in motion it's not that God was actually doing it or making Absalom do it God was just telling him this is the wheels you started I'm going to make sure they come around because that's how I've designed things. So 
David, verse 13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin and you are not going to die. That's good news. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. There's the consequence of what you've done. Verse 15, after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. So what God had said comes to pass. What are some thoughts on this portion of this book, or this chapter? Yeah. And God doesn't apologize for it. He just says that he struck the child. Well, we don't know. You know, we, we, we speculate. But one thing that we have to kind of keep in mind is, again, perspective, how we see life and how we see death. If life is only about this flesh and this time that we have, then yes, it's tragic that that's then cut short and this child, this innocence is done with and it's over. But if life exists and exists far past this physical state of being, then this child, even though they don't survive physically, are still alive, which David will later on going, go on to say, I, I will go to him, but he won't come back to me. And, and so just thinking about when God struck the child so that it died, it died physically, but it's not without existence. Well, he said, no, he said, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die that the Lord had taken his way his sin was the primary part. But that he didn't die was necessary for him to fulfill the promise that God had given to him, that through him the seed was going to come. There are a lot of things that had to happen with David that did happen with David. And that's why God didn't allow David to get away with it. Because God had made a promise to David and he wasn't going to just, oh well... That's a bummer. It would be, it, it's kind of like the garden. You know, why would God stop man from 
eating of the tree of life after they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, because he didn't want man to live in a perpetual state of evil. It would be better for man have to physically die than to continue living in that evil state. You know, that kind of a, a mentality. And so God needed to accomplish something important in David. And so he did not get away with these things. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And so, no. well, it's a good thing that the Lord took away his sin and he didn't die. It was good that he could continue the promise of God. Um, again, it is a harsh thing. I mean, God struck the child and it died. You know, we can ask why. Is it just for an example? Again, it can seem like well, that's, that's harsh. But sin is devastating and sin is harsh. You know, the whole idea of the sacrifice was to make us aware of how severe sin is, you know, and that's why there was blood involved because it's something that takes our life away. Yeah, thank God, though, that God doesn't kill all of us who are born out of wedlock, you know. Um, yeah, there'd be a lot. Yeah, even in verse 21, it says he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. You know, if anyone could have been hurt, you know, it would be David. I mean, Bathsheba definitely, of course, as well. But, you know, yeah, he received that forgiveness. Yeah, important, very important. Verse 21, let's finish this. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, I love this, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. I think that's great. Lord, who knows? You know, when all these people with the cancer, Lord, who knows? Maybe you'll heal them. I'm going to keep praying because, Lord, who knows? Because... I don't know, but maybe he will. Maybe the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah means loved to the Lord, loved of the Lord. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Reba. So this battle's still going on. These people that he's fighting, it's been a year now, of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Reba. And take in its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. In other words, get your your buns over here because I'm going to conquer this city and I'm going to take it for my name. Get over here. Which is interesting that Joab would push David in this way. So David mustered up the entire army and went to Reba and attacked it. And captured it. 
his sin did not condemn him to a life of failure and defeat. It's important to recognize that. That David's sin did not condemn him to a life of failure and defeat. Oh, it would have consequences, but it did not lock him in or condemn him to that life of failure and defeat. David took the crown from their king's head, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. David did this to all the Ammonites' towns, Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. It's so interesting that this story ends with a victory being given to David. So interesting. Even though the cost was going to be great to David, I think it's a great picture of showing what redemption does for us. The things that we do that would bring death to us, would bring this defeat to us, God is able to still bring victory in our lives in spite of those things. And it's just a gracious God that allows these things to take place. And God is gracious. And like you said, Colleen, we see David knew this and was able to continue going on and not be living a life of condemnation. Well, I can never show myself in the temple again because everyone knows what I did. How many people never go back to a place of worship because they did something and people know? (laughs) You know, it's like, well, truth is everyone's done something. You just, again, we keep it all quiet. So let's all confess. No, I'm not. (laughs) You go first. A couple of passages that stand out to me just in in this that I want to share. One is Proverbs 27, 20. It says, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the human eyes. In other words, we will keep going after whatever we desire unless we desire what is right. And so if we do not have a governor for our soul, we will keep going after whatever we want. In other words, we will not satisfy that desire. Second one is earlier in that same proverb, 27 verse 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Nathan was a faithful friend to be able to bring to David the truth that hurt him. Sorry about that. And I think that's important for us to remember. As friends, if we can go to someone, bring the truth to them to try and restore them, it's a good thing. Any thoughts on this chapter as we close? Any final thoughts, points, exclamations? Yeah, it's good not to be left in despair, you know? Yeah.
It's good not to be left in despair. If you don't have hope for forgiveness or restoration, then you can't move forward. If a couple, you know, a married couple is dealing with a problem, if there's not hope for a future, there will never be reconciliation. You know, when I talk to people and they're having struggles, I'll ask them, what do you want? What do you desire? And if they're saying, well, I don't know, I just want to get out of here. You know, well, what are you coming to me for? I can't help you if you don't see hope for your future. You know, and so there has to be that understanding of hope. If there isn't, then, yeah, you're going to be destined for that kind of calamity. Mm -hmm. Loved of the Lord, yeah. And so Solomon was loved of the Lord. Yep, the Lord loved him. God was gracious to him. And compared to his other sons, Solomon was a good one. And it's kind of interesting in 1 Kings, I think it's 11, Bathsheba pleads for Solomon to be king because David is a real old guy now. And someone else is taking over his throne, his other son. And so Bathsheba says, hey, I thought you said my son. Can you imagine those arguments? All these wives are going to want their son. What, is my son going to be king? Is my son? And why this one? You know, Firstborn? Supposed to be, but this wasn't his firstborn. So, anyway. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Nothing simple and clean about these things, huh? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the reality of Scripture and that it speaks to the reality of life, God, that it is not cut and dry and clean and easy to distinguish, that there are so many things that just overlay on top of each other where we have your love for someone and we have a violation against you and we have judgment for that violation but restoration as well and all these things are woven together into just the complexity of life and lord that's what we experience and may we not be surprised as these things happen in our own lives to small or great degrees may we recognize that your involvement pushes us to a place of accountability, that you, the reality of who you are forces us to live moral lives because you are a God who cares. And Lord, that we actually despise your words when we sin against you that we actually fight against creation itself when we choose to ignore your warnings, your insights, your truths, the things that you have revealed. And may we be wise to learn this lesson from David so that we don't have to learn it from ourselves. May we take these things that we see and read and bring our own understanding of what you're telling us so that we will not fall into the same pitfalls, that we will not give in to the same things, that we will be able to learn these lessons and take that and put it into practice in our own lives. Lord, thank you for just allowing the openness of this story to be here for us to talk about and to discuss. 
We do thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.